Bibles to Romans 8. We'll be reading verses 1 through 4. And something we periodically want to do because we value the Word of God as unique. And we see that, that only really God's Word is inerrant and completely inspired and infallible. And so we want to give honor to God's Word. We want to show that we worship God and we give thanks to Him for His Word. So I'm going to ask you to go ahead and stand together and we will read God's Word together. So if you're able to stand, please stand. If you're not able to stand, please stay seated. But um, for all, please stand at least in your hearts. Romans 8, 1 through 4. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. This is God's holy word. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, I pray that these familiar verses would not sit in a familiar way with us. God, I pray that these familiar verses would strike us in a way that they've not before. God, I pray that you would impress upon our hearts the glorious truth that we are, we are not condemned if we are in you. Lord, I pray that you would press upon us that not only do we have no condemnation, but we've been set free. And Father, I pray that we would, as we grasp that, we would glory, Lord, in the truth that we've been set free so that we might walk in newness of your spirit. God, I pray for all who are struggling, all who are having difficulties, all who are doubting and wondering and feeling as if they're condemned, Lord, for all of us, Lord, who from time to time experience feelings of condemnation. I pray that these scriptures would be an encouragement to us. You would strengthen us and that we would hope in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Lord, I, I need you. We need you. Lord, would you fill us afresh with your spirit? Would you open up our minds to, to hear from you? And would you open up my mouth to be able to speak on your behalf? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, there is a question that should concern everyone in this room. There's a question that everyone in this room should be asking. There's a question, no matter whether you are a believer in Jesus Christ or not, whether you've placed your faith in God or not, you should be asking a question, or at least have settled or be able to settle this question. And it's a crucial question, and the question really is this, it's how do you know that you will not be condemned when you go and stand before God on the final day of judgment? How do you know that you won't be condemned when you stand before God on that final day? How do you know? If you're not a believer, you might have some ways of dealing with this. You might be thinking, well, you know, I don't really believe there is a God. But really, that's just a, a lame excuse to justify the fact that we're bothered, that we know that Ultimately, all of us inherently, God says, know that we're guilty before the Creator, that we have sinned against Him. So how do you know that you won't stand condemned? What if you're wrong? If you're wrong, how do you know you won't stand condemned? Others might think, well, you know what, I, I believe in a God, but I think that God basically understands that we're just weak and we have issues and, and He sees that I try and I really want to do what's right. I want to do what's good. And he understands. And I don't think he's really going to punish anybody. And so I think we're all going to be okay. But yet if you understand who God's revealed himself to be from the Bible, and if you understand God's perfection and his character and his nature, 
then you're going to see that really none of us are okay. And that's what Apostle Paul has been showing us throughout the first part of the book of Romans. None of us are okay. There is a day of judgment. You can try to ignore that. But there is a day of judgment coming. We all will stand before him. We're accountable before the creator. Even if you think that you have some righteousness on your own, then Paul has been helping us see that there is no one righteous, no, not one. Nobody can stand before God uncondemned on their own. Or maybe you try to underestimate the seriousness of your sin because you compare yourself to other people and you think, I'm, I'm really doing okay because I'm better than the other guy and my life is pretty okay and so I think I'll be okay. And the Apostle Paul has been telling us throughout the book of Romans that if you think that way, you're actually deceived and your hearts become hardened. So how do you answer that question of, of how do you know that you won't be condemned before God on the final day? That's an important question, but the Apostle Paul is not primarily addressing this passage to unbelievers. This passage is really addressed primarily, I believe, to believers. And you think, well, wait a minute, why is this passage addressed to believers? The Apostle Paul has been laying out how we're all guilty, how um, we have been freed from the law by God's grace, and yet there's this battle that remains. In Romans 7, we see that when we want to do good, evil lies close at hand. And the very thing we want to do, we, we keep on doing. And if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, you have experienced a struggle in your own head, in your own heart, where you've at least wondered, am I really free from condemnation? Am I really free from condemnation? You know, how many people here sinned in some way this week that you really didn't want to and that you had some remorse about? Anybody? You can raise your hand. It's okay. I won't ask you what. It's just don't worry about that. That's some quick hand raising. Um, let, me, let me help you all. Every one of us has sinned in some way this week. The question is whether you experience conviction or not. But, you know, this week, you know, I, I, I was aware on, on a little mini vacation we took Monday to Wednesday, I was I, I'd sinned again. I'm like, oh my gosh, I just, what I wanted to do, I didn't, I didn't do. And instead, what I didn't want to do is what I ended up doing. And I know better. I just preached a whole message on this last week. And, and I could feel, and all of us can feel that temptation of, well, who will deliver me from this body of death? And we feel like we still deserve condemnation. Can anyone relate to that? Do you ever feel like you still deserve some kind of, I still feel bad. I still feel like I'm condemned. I still feel like I'm found guilty. This passage is meant for us to help us answer that question, and whether you're a believer or unbeliever alike, of how do you know? How can you know? How can you be sure that you don't stand condemned before God? That's why Apostle Paul has written this. It's, it's right after he's writing about this struggle. You're thinking, well, if I struggle like this, then I might not really be a Christian. And Paul says, no, thanks be to God, he through Jesus Christ, he's delivered us. So even though we have this battle that's going on in our heads, we, we agree that the law of God is good and we assent to it, we agree to it, and yet in our flesh we still find that we sin. So what do we do? Because you're going to experience those temptations to condemnation. You're going to experience those temptations to guilt. And the Apostle Paul is helping us deal with that and really helping us learn how to live the Christian life. And it doesn't start with a bunch of commands, if you noticed. Look down your Bible in the first four verses here. You're not going to find a command there. You're not going to find a command there. And, And that's because it is critical for us to be able to live the Christian life, to found our walk in the Christian life, in who we are in Christ Jesus. Really, who we are is we're defined by Christ Jesus. That's what the the word to be a Christian means. It means to be a Christ-like one, a Christ follower. And so when you failed for the millionth time and you feel like a loser, I don't know about you, but it happens to me all the time, what do you do with those feelings of condemnation? How do you have confidence that there's no condemnation for you? Paul's addressing those things. And, and the very first thing he wants us to see in this very first verse is something we can become really familiar with. We say, hey, I know that truth, but do you really? And that, that truth that we need to grasp, that we need to hold on to and hang on to and live in the good of, it's really it's straightforward. It's that Christians have no condemnation. Christians have no condemnation. 
No condemnation remains for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's, that's the first idea the Apostle Paul wants us to grasp if we're going to walk out the Christian life. If we're going to do this thing called the Christian life and, and we're going to try to keep in step with the Spirit, as he tells us the rest of the chapter 8, chapter 8 really begins, how do we live in a way that pleases God? Well, it begins not with a bunch of commands, but it begins by knowing that we have no condemnation. In the last couple of weeks, there have been so many headlines um, in the news that have been meant to grab your attention about various scandals in the government and all these one side scandals and another side scandals. And, and all these headlines are meant to be attention grabbing. When the Apostle Paul wrote this verse, it, it would have stood out like the most attention grabbing, groundbreaking news. When he gets to this place and he says, you know, even sincere Christians can battle sin. But even though you continue to battle sin, there is therefore now no condemnation. That's meant to affect us. It's meant to grab our attention. I loved the book, kind of, um, that Victor Hugo wrote called Les Miserables, which was The Miserables. I said I kind of love the book because, man, he digresses all over the place. Um, I liked the movie a few years back. I couldn't stand the musical because I can't take that much singing. But the storyline is what's grabbing. The storyline really grabs you. Jean Valjean, he, he is arrested and he is thrown into prison because he steals a loaf of bread for his sister who's on the verge of starvation. And he's in prison for five years for stealing bread. You might think that's extreme, but the reality is that was a form of justice. It was justice in one sense. He broke the law he stole. Now, there was a lot of injustice, injustice in society that led to why she was starving to begin with, but he was thrown in prison for five years. Now, he tries, instead of submitting himself, he tries to escape 14 times. So his sentence keeps getting extended until finally he's in jail for 19 years all stemming from when he stole some bread. He gets out. He's a little embittered. He's released on parole. And he's a little angry still. He's a little bitter at society around him and the unfairness that he sees. And he's sleeping on the streets and he doesn't have anywhere to stay. So he he finds a place to stay in the home of this bishop. This bishop bienvenu. And he invites him into his house and he stays there. And in the middle of the night, the Jean Valjean, he gets up and he steals the silverware from this bishop who is the only person who has shown him any kind of grace, the only person who showed him any kind of hospitality, the only person who's been kind to him, and he steals from this one person who's shown mercy to him. And he steals from him, and he's conflicted. He feels a little bit bad about it, but not bad enough. And so a few little while long later, the the police, the gendarmes, they, they arrest him and they bring him to the bishop to identify the silver. And they say, you know, was, was this, is this silverware yours? And there's this interaction between him and the bishop. And the bishop says, yes. But they said, well, Jean Valjean said that he was given the silverware by you. And the bishop says, yes, I've given it to him, even though he had not previously given it to him. And then there is this interchange The bishop looks at Valjean and he says, I'm glad to see you. Well, but how is this? I I gave you the candlesticks too, which are of silver like the rest and, and for which you can certainly get 200 francs. Why did you not carry them away with your forks and spoons? Jean Valjean opened his eyes wide and stared at the venerable bishop with an expression no human tongue can render any account of. Monsignor said the brigadier, so what this man said is true? As I told you, interposed the bishop with a smile, it's been given to him by a kind old fellow of a priest with whom he passed the night. The matter stands. And you've brought him back here? It's a mistake. In that case, we'll let him go. And so they let him go. Jean Valjean recoils and he says, is, is it true that I'm to be released? In an almost inarticulate voice, as though he were talking in his sleep. Yes, thou art released. Dost thou not understand? Said one of the gendarmes. My friend, resumed the bishop, before you go, here's your candlesticks. Take them. He stepped to the chimney piece, took the two silver candlesticks, brought them to Jean Valjean. The two women looked on without uttering a word. Jean Valjean was trembling in every limb. He took the two candlesticks mechanically and with a bewildered air. Now the bishop said, go in peace. 
By the way, when you return, my friend, it's not necessary to pass through the garden. You can always enter and depart through the street door. It's never fastened with anything but a latch. And then he sends the gendarmes away and he draws near to Jean Valjean and says in a low voice, do not forget, never forget, you've promised to use this money in becoming an honest man. He was left speechless. He says, Jean Valjean, my brother, you no longer belong to evil, but to good. It's your soul that I buy from you. I withdraw it from the black thoughts and spirit of perdition and give it to God. Jean Valjean experienced something in that moment that he was shocked by. He did not expect that he would be released. He did not expect mercy. He did not expect that he'd be given the thing that he wanted to steal and more. He expected condemnation. But instead of receiving condemnation, he received mercy. He received mercy instead of condemnation. And the Apostle Paul has been showing us throughout the past several chapters that Christians do not receive, those who are found in Christ Jesus, who place their faith in Christ Jesus, they don't receive the condemnation that you would expect, that you feel like you deserve, that you know you deserve, even after you've been set free when you go and steal again. You still don't receive condemnation. Instead, you receive mercy. But why is he writing therefore at the beginning of this verse? Why does he say therefore there's now no condemnation? It can't be because of the second half of verse 25. Look down your Bibles. He just right before the therefore said, so then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. He's certainly not meaning that you know, because he serves the law of God with his mind and serves the law of sin with his flesh, that there's no condemnation, that wouldn't make sense. And some people will say, well, maybe it's because just the first part of that verse where he says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And he answers that question of who's delivered us from this body of death. And I think in part that's true, but if you look down your Bibles again, I want you to look down in Romans 7, verse 6. That's where Paul began his wonderful treatise on this this wrestling that goes on within the Christian walk, even though we've been declared free. Look down in Romans 7, verse 6. It says, but now, but now we are released from the law, having died. We are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that We serve not under the old written code, but in the new life of the Spirit. And now in in Romans 8, he's beginning to explain what's serving in the new life of the Spirit. What does life as a Christian look like now, even though we continue to wrestle? How do we serve in this new life of the Spirit? By faith in Jesus, we've died to our old nature. As we place your faith in Jesus Christ, what you were saying is that I'm putting my faith in the fact that I deserve to be punished for all of my sins. I'm putting my faith in the fact that Jesus was punished in my place for all of my sins. I'm putting my faith in the fact that, that Jesus died in my place, the death that I deserved. And so when he died, it's like I died. And so in the death of Christ, we were dead and And baptism symbolizes our burial with Christ. And being raised up out of the water symbolizes that walking in newness of life. But although we've experienced that, we still struggle. So Paul told us about this newness of life in Romans 7, 6. But then we still struggle. We have the struggle. So what do we do? Are we still condemned? You ever experienced that in the Christian walk where you, you, you become aware, you become a Christian. You're like, thank you, Jesus. There's no condemnation. And you rejoice in that. And you're doing good for a little bit. But then you, you do something that you didn't want to do. And then you feel bad. And so then you try for a little while to like do some kind of penance. That's not a biblical idea. But you try to, try to make up for it. And so then when you start doing a little better, you start feeling better about yourself. Right? You ever, you ever done that? You ever done better and so you felt better about yourself? And then, and then you sin again. And so you get dragged down. And you're like, oh my gosh, well I'm still guilty. And then so I try to do better, and then I'm still guilty, and then I try to do better, and I'm still guilty, and I try to do better. And there's this wrestling, you think, well, am I really free? And Paul says that living the Christian life, walking out the Christian life, it must begin with us knowing that we're free from condemnation. And it must continue, walking in the Spirit begins with knowing 
that we have no condemnation. No matter what your heart tells you, your head tells you, that's the astounding, scandalous truth of the gospel. There's no condemnation. You know what the word no means? It means no. No, not one bit, not one little ounce of condemnation remains. You say, well, how could that be? Um, I've done something wrong still, and, and the answer is yes, but when Jesus died, he died for all the sins, not only you had done in the past, but all the sins you'll do in the future. All of the sins you committed were in the future when he died for you, and he was condemned for all your sins. You know, what is condemnation? We need to think about that for a minute. What is condemnation? Condemnation is a declaration of a legal standing. It's a, it's a declaration that we deserve punishment. If you break the law and you maliciously kill somebody, imagine that. And if you've ever hated anybody in your heart, then Jesus said it's like you've committed murder, so it's not too hard for us to imagine. I've had murderous thoughts in my heart. So imagine that you actually carried those out, that you killed someone. And the state catches you, and they take you to trial, and there's going to be one of two verdicts that, they're going to, that are going to be found. They're going to be, the state is going to be prosecuting you, and they're going to be seeking a guilty verdict. And there's only two options here. Either you're going to be found guilty, or you're going to be found acquitted. Really, that's the, the end result. So imagine that through this process, that you're either going to be vindicated or condemned, And if you're found guilty, then you're condemned and you face the death penalty. Until you're punished, though, you'd be living imprisoned under the sentence of condemnation. That's what happens is, in our country at least, when those states that still carry out the death penalty, whatever you think about that, um, when the death penalty is pronounced, the person typically waits and it takes a long time until that sentence is carried out. And so while that person is under the sentence of condemnation, they're imprisoned in their sin. And until, if you were convicted of and condemned to death for murder, you would be living imprisoned under the sentence of condemnation and you'd be awaiting your final punishment. You'd be in a court system feeling bad about your crime. It doesn't remove your condemnation. It doesn't remove your condemnation. But you know what? He says once you're, you're put to death for your crime, you, you can't be punished again. And there's now no condemnation. And that's what the Apostle Paul has been telling us all along. He says, you have been put to death in the death of Christ. There is therefore now no condemnation. You're no longer imprisoned. You're no longer under this sentence. You cannot be punished anymore. You can't be condemned anymore. You've already died to those sins in the death of Christ. So how in the world could you be punished again? No punishment remains. No condemnation remains. No sentence hangs over you anymore. You've been set free. And we'll get to that in just a moment. All of us, before our Creator God, have been found guilty and condemned. We might not be guilty of murder in this life, but we've all been found guilty of breaking God's law in some way. On our own, we're condemned. We're living in prison by the law apart from Christ. We are imprisoned. That's the language that Paul has been using in these last few chapters of Romans. We've been imprisoned. And if you are apart from Christ, if you not place your faith in Christ, then you are imprisoned and condemned. If you are in Christ by faith, though, what he's saying here is there's no condemnation. Not that there's not condemnation to begin with and there's a little condemnation later but hey, you better not mess up because more condemnation is coming. Jesus erased your condemnation to begin with, but if you mess up, you know what? Watch out because you've got to pay for it. No, he's saying in the death of Christ, you've died. There's no condemnation for you. The question for us is, are you in Christ Jesus today? Are you placing your faith in Christ Jesus? If you're not a believer here, You stand still under this imprisonment of sin, imprisonment of God's law. You still owe the penalty for disobeying God's law. But you can be in Christ 
placing your faith in him, and I encourage you to do that today. And if you're a believer here, you don't need to struggle with condemnation anymore, even though your flesh and the devil and people around you might make you feel like you're condemned still. You need to hear the liberating, shocking words that there's no condemnation for you. No condemnation. Not one bit. Even when I mess up? Yes, even when you mess up. Even if I wrestle and I do the very thing I don't want to do, Paul says, yes, in the midst of that, there's no condemnation. Even, even when I, I keep doing the very things I hate, Paul says, yes, because of what Christ has done, there is therefore now no condemnation in Christ Jesus. There's no sentence hanging over your head. He's not waiting to punish you. I love the way F.F. Bruce puts it. He says, we've been freed from the prison house of sin. There's no condemnation. We've been pardoned completely. We've been made dead. The penalty has been paid already. It's been removed because in Christ, even when you feel guilty, you need to preach to yourself. There's no condemnation because Jesus already took all our guilt. And there's not a possibility for guilt to remain. It's a complete impossibility. There's only two options for you uh, as a person. Either you're in Christ and no condemnation remains because all of your sins have been punished already, or you're not in Christ and you stand condemned. If you're a Christian, there is no possibility. Let me say it again. There's no possibility for you to be condemned. There's no punishment remaining. None at all if you're a believer. I mean, I'd like to just stop right now. Maybe we should just have a time of worship. Forget the rest of the sermon. We need to camp out there. There's no condemnation. Even when you displease God for the hundred millionth time again, you need to know that he's already forgiven you and he stands ready for you to ask forgiveness, to be reconciled. He doesn't condemn and he will not condemn because no condemnation can remain. And then he tells us this, this other reason why we can have confidence to walk out the Christian life. And he says, because the law of the spirit of life, it's a greater law, the law of the spirit of life, it sets you free. Look at verse 2, the second truth that we Christians need to be sure of as we wrestle with this remaining sin. It's the truth that Christians are set free by the spirit. And I would add, in Christ Jesus. Christians are set free by the Spirit. Do you know that you've been set free? Look in verse 2. It says, for the law of the Spirit of life. What does he mean, the law of the Spirit of life? It's when he said earlier in in chapter 7, I find this law at work. He wasn't talking about the law of Moses, but he was saying it's like a rule. It's like a binding principle that keeps me. I can't break it. It's like it rules me. There's this law, and he says there's a better law. There's a bigger law. There's a more powerful law. It's the law of the Spirit who reigns and rules now over you. And this reigning, ruling Spirit who is ruling in your life, who reigns now, who you have by Christ, in Christ. He says, this law of the Spirit, this principle of the Holy Spirit has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. I remember back in 2003, I was watching a, a documentary about, back in 2003, this show. Um, I can't remember the name of the show, but Siegfried and Roy, these popular entertainers who were a little bizarre, and they worked with tigers, and they did magic in Las Vegas. Um, In 2003, there was this really tragic thing that happened. Roy, he was on stage with this massive tiger. I think it was Montague or something like that. I can't, Montecourt. And this tiger I can't remember how many pounds, 800 pound tiger, I think, um, was on this white tiger, was on the stage, and he was trying to get it to obey him and trying to get him to do what it wanted. And, you know, Siegfried and Roy had this illusion of the fact that they were in control, when really they were never in control of the tigers to begin with. And I don't think we really ever were ever meant to interact with tigers in that way, post-fall at least. And so he is on stage with this massive tiger and nothing between him and the audience. And there is this woman in the audience for some reason provoked the tiger and the tiger starts to lunge towards this audience member. So Roy steps in front of this tiger thinking that he has control over the tiger. And the tiger bites his arm. 
And this is in front of the stage. Thousands of people are there in the audience watching this unfold. They're thinking this is part of the act still. And he's got a hold of his arm, and so he kind of drags him down a little bit. And, and Roy is, is hitting him on the nose with his microphone. I can't imagine that's going to do much good to an 800-pound tiger. It's probably going to irritate him more. But Roy had the, the feeling he thought that he was in control. He thought he could dominate it with his feeble attempts. He could whack this tiger over the nose, and he'd be able to make this tiger submit. But the tiger would have none of it. And so the tiger, he pulled him down, he just lifts his head up, bites the back of Roy's neck, and then drags him off of the stage like a rag doll. Roy had no control and was fighting for his life within moments. Now, thankfully, the, the end of the story is he, he did survive, barely. He was paralyzed. It took him a while to recover. The problem was that, well, they ended their show after that, too. They no longer do that, which is good. He realized that he didn't really have control over the tiger. It was only whether the tiger let him do what he wanted or not. With us, prior to being set free from sin, when we try to combat sin on our own as a believer, it's like trying to hit the tiger with a microphone in the nose. It's not gonna, as we try to combat sin in our own power without the spirit of life enabling us, we really don't have any control over sin and over the law. And on our own, it will dominate you. Sin is too powerful. The law condemns. The law, as Paul's been telling us, it really can only tell us that we are a sinner, but it can't make us into a saint. It's, it functions like a mirror to show us who we are, but that reflection doesn't change us. But the good news is that, that Paul is telling us He said, but there's a law of the spirit of life that's even greater than this law of sin and death. If you try to fight the law of sin and death on your own, that struggle that we can all get into, why Paul was explaining this frustration he had in Romans 7, is when we try in our own strength, we're we're going to get exhausted. We're going to get worn out. We're not going to be able to combat sin on our own unless we realize that the law of the spirit of life has set us free. And we rely on this greater law of the Spirit to set us free. You know, although Jean Valjean, he was in the story of Les Miserables, he was free to go after that. He immediately after that broke his parole. And then for basically the most remainder of his life, there was this police officer who had seen Valjean um, when he was in prison he was a prison guard. He was now a police officer. His name was Javert. And so Jean Valjean, although he was set free by the bishop, he breaks his parole, and then he spends the rest of his life running from, this, from the law, from this man, Javert. And it, and it wasn't until the lawman died that he was free from his pursuer. You know, I, I can't remember how many years it was in the book, but it was at least 20 years later Javert was still following and hounding him, still after him. And wherever he went, Javert seemed to be able to find him. And he wasn't free until, I'm not going to tell you how, but until Javert dies. And then when Javert dies, then he's finally set free from the law, from this law that pursued him. And if you're a Christian, what Paul has been telling us is that you have died to the law and now you've been set free. But you've not been set free and left on your own. You've been set free by the law of the spirit of life. The spirit gives you life. The spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus. You have someone, something that is greater than that Bengal tiger hanging on and dragging you off. You have the spirit of life. When you battle, when you feel like you can't go on, we must remember the spirit of life has set us free in Christ Jesus. What are we supposed to do? We're supposed to turn to the Holy Spirit 
Look to him in strength. Rely on his strength. And remember that he's the one who gives life. That's our hope. It's the same Holy Spirit, by the way. And if you're thinking, well, that's not much help for me because I don't know how to do that. You know, I've tried that. I'm done with that. I'm going to have to try something else. And I would say, then you're not really relying on the Holy Spirit. You're not really looking to the Holy Spirit. And, and how do you do that? It's to remember, first off, who the Holy Spirit is, the spirit of life that he talks about. The spirit of life, it's the same spirit, Paul tells us or in another verse, that, that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. It's the same spirit that came down on Jesus when Jesus was coming up out of the water and it empowered Jesus and anointed him for ministry. It's the same spirit that filled Jesus and empowered him to do all those mighty works. It's the same spirit that, although Jesus was dead, made him alive. This spirit of life, it's it's a bigger law. It's a greater law. The spirit of life has set you free. You need to know that. You need to realize that. You need to walk in the good of that. You don't have to wonder if you're free in Christ Jesus. You are free indeed, no matter what you feel like. And you need to take those thoughts captive when you feel like, I still deserve condemnation. Well, yes, in our own, you would deserve condemnation, but thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ, my Lord, I am now no longer condemned. And so what do I do? I respond. I respond to those thoughts. I, I preach the truth to myself. And then I say, thank you, God, that I am free. Now, Lord, out of the freedom that you've given to me, let me, enable me to rely on your spirit of life. And then trust in the Holy Spirit to empower you, to give you life. And then begin to say, Holy Spirit, would you show me how to walk? There's no condemnation. The reason you're free is that God did what you could not do. We're going to see that this third truth that we must grasp, or if we're going to walk out the Christian life in the Spirit, this this third truth is not only that there's no condemnation, not only that we've been set free, but now Christians walk according to the Spirit. Look in verses 3 and 4. It says in verse 3, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemns sin in the flesh. What's it, what's it saying? What's the first thing we need to know in order to walk in the Spirit? You need to know that God did what you can't do and what you cannot do and you will never be able to do. And so stop trying to earn that favor. Stop trying to act as if. Christ has not already done what you couldn't do. The good news of the gospel is that he says God has done what the law could not do. You could not keep the law because your sinful flesh was too weak. The law could save if we were not sinful, if we could keep the law. But the problem is our flesh is weak. We can't keep the law. And so God, he's done what we can't do. So don't try to take that back and act as if you can do what God says you can't do and you couldn't do. Don't be so proud to think that you can do what no other human has been able to do. Instead, trust in the fact that Christ has done what you could not do. And he tells us how. He says, by God has done what we couldn't do. He says, how? By sending his own son. He sent his own son, and he sent him in the likeness of sinful flesh. He sent his son to take our place, and that's our hope. But he didn't send him as sinful. He sent him in the human flesh, and it was in the likeness of sinful flesh. So Jesus came in every way like we were, tempted yet without sin. Jesus came as a real man. He really came in the flesh. And the Apostle Paul is reemphasizing that. Jesus really came in the flesh to take your place in the flesh. But the difference is it was just in the likeness of sinful flesh. He wasn't actually sinful. And that's our hope. Our hope is that although Jesus was tempted in every way like we are, he was without sin. And you might think, well, that was pretty easy for Jesus. You ever thought that? Well, Jesus wasn't born of the sin nature. It must have been easy for him, really. It must have been easy for Adam. But I would say it was probably harder for Jesus a million times because Jesus not just kept one command, 
that Adam just broke one command and was found guilty for. Jesus kept all of God's commands. He was faithful in every way. He was faithful in all of God's commands. He resisted to the point of shedding blood. And let me tell you, if you've ever had a really hard temptation, you ever resisted that temptation, you know how hard it is to resist the temptation and carry that through? It's way harder to carry through resisting temptation than it is to give in in the middle. It's a relief to give in the temptation. It's way harder to resist temptation. And so what he's saying here is that he came in sinful flesh and for sin, not only did he condemn sin in the flesh, he in every way condemns sin. Jesus came as a man to earn the righteousness that we could never earn in the flesh and then 2 Corinthians 5, 21, the Apostle Paul elsewhere elaborates on the same truth. And he says, for our sake, for Matt's sake, for Bob's sake, for everyone's sake, for Kathy's sake, for Bill's sake. I'm making up names now. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Because your sin has already been condemned in the flesh of Jesus, because Jesus already bore all of your sin, your sin has been condemned, punished fully, and it's been completed. When Jesus said, it is finished, he meant it's finished. Your sins have been paid for completely. All of our sins have been condemned. All of our sins have been punished. And for all those who have been united with Christ Jesus, by grace, through faith, the power of sin has been broken. And then Paul tells us, look down to verse 4. He tells us why he did this. Look in verse 4. He tells us why he did that. He says, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, here is how God sees you. He sees the righteous requirement of the law completely fulfilled in you because why you are in Christ Jesus. If you are in Christ Jesus, God looks at you as having fulfilled completely the righteous requirements of the law. And, it, and that verse is, is driving that, that truth home, but it's also saying something else. It's, he also did that. He already fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law in our place, and so as we are in him, those requirements are fulfilled, but it's also meant so we could walk them out. It says, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. His requirements of the law are fulfilled, and so now we can walk according to the Spirit. We can be set free and walk in this new life. I came across the story of a guy named William Purvis. William Purvis was this young man, and in 1894, there was this other man named William Buckley, and his servant had been brutally beaten, and William Buckley found out who did it, and so he goes to testify against him at this grand jury, and he testifies to the grand jury, and he's returning home through the woods near William Purvis's home. Now, the thing you need to know is that William Purvis actually was a member of the same group that that ends up killing William Buckley. William Purvis knew nothing of that. But this group who had abused the servant, not including Purvis, but he, they abused the servant, they found out about his testimony to the grand jury. He's coming back through the woods. Buckley's coming back through the woods. This man jumps out. He shoots Buckley in the head, and he falls down dead. The, the other people with him flee. His brother and the servant who were with him, they go away. But they bring out the bloodhounds. The bloodhounds track the trail of the murderer past Purvis's house. And on circumstantial evidence between that and his brother actually wanted the property that Purvis owned, testified that Purvis was the guy who shot his brother. And so Purvis goes to jail. And he's condemned. And he's sentenced to death. And then not only is he has appealed, denied. The Supreme Court of the state um, overturns any, I mean, uh, suppresses any appeal, and, and they, they convict him, and they send him to the gallows. And as he's walking up to the gallows, he's declaring his innocence. The sheriff sees that there's this huge 
tail of rope that comes down from the noose, and so he cuts off the tail of rope, and they put the noose around Buckley's, around, I'm sorry, Purvis's neck. The executioner drops out the bottom, Purvis falls, and then the unthinkable happens, the noose breaks, and Purvis lives. And then this, this, this minister comes up, and he rushes up on the stage, and he says, I think this is an act of God, and how many people here want to see him go free? And then surprisingly, the crowd that was all there to see this man be executed, they all shout that they want to see this guy go free. And at first you think, well, maybe the story is going to end well. Well, kind of. He's put in jail. His case goes back to the Supreme Court. Supreme Court says, no, just because the execution didn't work doesn't mean that he goes free. The penalty is death, and death he shall get. And so he's back in jail, and he's awaiting his trial. Fortunately, there's a governor who's sympathetic to him, and, and he says, you know, this is kind of a sad story, and a lot of the townspeople, they really, they really like him. And so bowing to the pressure of the townspeople, he says, you know what, I'm going to commute the death sentence, and he's going to live life in prison. He's going to live life in prison for the rest of his life. Even though he, he wasn't going to die right then, he still had this condemnation hanging over him. And it, and it wasn't until this man named Joe Beard in 1917, 23 years later, 1917, this guy named Joe Beard, he's at this Pentecostal tent meeting and he gets convicted because he knew about this murder that happened and his friend who covered it up and so he comes forward, he's convicted, and he testifies that his buddy Lewis Thornhill really did it. And so finally, in 1920, William Purvis is exonerated. He's set free, and then he's compensated. And he goes out with, in today's money, about a quarter of a million dollars. He's compensated. He walks out free, and he can... He can walk out a new man and walks out in the good of that. For us, the righteous requirements of the law have already been fulfilled. And and someone else has paid the penalty and now we go free. And we, we experience that same freedom that he must have felt, that same jubilation and joy that he must have felt as he walked out and said, you know, not only am I free, but I get to have a new life now. The righteous requirement of the law has been met. That requirement that we love the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our mind, with all of our strength, that we love our neighbor as ourselves, the whole law is summed up in that. That requirement that we've broken, it's already been fulfilled in us when Jesus fulfilled it for us. But now we get to walk out in that new life that we have. None of us could love God completely on our own. But the good news of the gospel is that it gives us wings. It gives us a grant. It gives us the ability now to walk freely like we've never done anything at all. John, at least a poem that's attributed to John Bunyan, I think is, I can relate to. He says, run, John, run, the law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives us wings. The gospel calls us to to rise above our sin. It frees us. It redeems us. It it makes us righteous and then gives us everything that we need in the Spirit now to walk out a newness of life. Now we can trust that the Holy Spirit is actually not only in us and set us free, but He's enabling us to walk. Christian, you need to know every day the Holy Spirit's the one who's enabling and will enable your sanctification. He's the one who enables you to walk according to Him. Because you have a rule, you have the law, the Spirit of life, that He set you free in Christ. And He's enabled you to walk now according to Him. An old guy named S.G. Hook says, When the Spirit came, with the Spirit came life, freedom, and power. Those who live by the Spirit, as Paul says, produce the fruits of the Spirit. A vine does not produce grapes by act of parliament. They are the fruits of the vine's own life. 
Understand what he's saying? A vine doesn't produce grapes by act of parliament. We don't produce grapes, fruit, in and of ourselves. They're fruit of the vine's own life. Our own life comes from the Spirit. He goes on to say, So the conduct which conforms to the standard of the kingdom is not produced by any demand. It's not trying to keep the law, that battling within. I want to do good. Not even God's, he says, but it's the fruit of the divine nature which God gives as the result of what he's done in and by Christ. Because we have the Spirit, we can have confidence he will bear fruit. We will walk according to the Spirit because we are in Christ. And in Christ, he has set us free. In Christ, this law of the Spirit now reigns. And as we draw near to Jesus and find our fulfillment in life in Him, we need to know the Holy Spirit's working to make us more holy. So when you struggle, when you wrestle against sin, you need to know the whole Trinity is involved in your sanctification. God the Father doing what you could not do, the Holy Spirit setting us free in Christ Jesus, And now in Christ Jesus, by the Holy Spirit, we walk in newness of life. So what's the main idea I want you to to walk away with today? It's really this, that we want to have confidence in our life in Christ, even when we struggle with sin. Here's this main idea we need to know. Is that all who are in Christ are not condemned. All who are in Christ are not condemned. But we're set free so that we might walk according to the Spirit. That's the truth of God's word that we're called to live in. That's what we need to tell ourselves. That's what we need to remind ourselves of. That's what we need to continue to go back to. And next week, we're going to continue to see, so what does it mean to actually walk it out? What does it mean to live it out? What does it look like practically, Matt? Well, I'd say practically, the first place it starts is, is begin telling yourself the truth, reminding yourself of truth, having that battle with your mind, telling yourself the truth, and then trusting in the Spirit. And I'm going to leave you with that. And then next week, Paul's going to help us see what it actually looks like to walk in the Spirit. But today, I want you to know that all who are in Christ are not condemned but set free so that we might walk according to the Spirit. And because of that, we have hope. Let's pray. And as I pray, I'll have the band go ahead and come up. Father, you know the battle within You know our failures, you know our weaknesses, you know our temptations. You know that we're tempted to feel guilty still. That our own flesh tells us we're guilty because we know we've transgressed your law, even though we've been forgiven from it. God, we we feel condemned from time to time because we are aware that we can't keep your law on our own. God, I pray that you would Help us see that we've been set free from the law of sin and death. That you've condemned us completely in the death of Christ. And yet we are no longer standing under condemnation. We can no longer face condemnation. And I pray that you would help us walk in this law of the Spirit that set us free. Lord, would you enable us to trust in, to rest in you, and to walk in according to the Spirit. Because Holy Spirit, you've given us new life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.